The KSTE Farm Hour is sponsored in part by Allion Herbicide from Bayer. Residual control that goes the distance. Cleaner, longer, Allion. Welcome to the KSTE Farm Hour. Here's KSTE's farmer Fred, Fred Hoffman. The independent forensics team reviewing the problems at Oroville Dam have released their report. And it's a scathing document criticizing just about everyone involved in the near failure of that structure last February, including the original designers of the project. And how about those farmers who lost cropland and orchards from the massive releases of water there last winter? They have yet to see any money from the state. We have that report. The president addressed the gathering at the American Farm Bureau convention last week, and everything was going smoothly until he brought up one topic that is particularly sensitive for California's farmers. Getting ready to apply fungicides to almond orchards? We have some tips. All that, crop reports, and more on this week's KSTE Farm Hour. Let's get started. Norville Dam is back in the news. If you have a lot of spare reading time, there's a new 580-page report that reviews exactly what happened at the Oroville Dam last February. The primary designer of the Oroville Dam spillway, according to the report, had no experience in designing spillways, and his team had little contact with the geologists who studied the ground before construction or the people who actually built the structures, that according to the forensic team report that was released last week. It states the designers appear to have assumed the structures would be built on good rock and weren't told that wasn't the case. According to the Chico Enterprise record, there were policies in place to remove all the loose rock and soil where the main spillway would be built, and these were followed at the head gates and the top of the chute. But those rules were relaxed as the work moved downhill, a decision apparently made by engineers at the scene without consulting the designers. The construction managers also made other critical decisions without consulting the designers, and that also contributed, according to the report, to the spillway failure. The report said the inexperience of the primary spillway designer may have contributed to the problems. The report said he was hired directly from a postgraduate program with his professional experience limited to two summers working with an engineering consulting firm. He had no prior professional experience designing spillways, but he had taken courses on hydraulic structures. Nor was his work, according to the report, overseen by any engineer within the Department of Water Resources. The report lays blame to a number of causes for the spillway failure from the design all the way through the actual event last February. Since no blame can be put on any single entity, the authors of the report are hoping that their blueprint serves as a future guideline for any new dam construction in California and throughout the United States. And you may recall that lawyers filed a $15 million government claim on behalf of walnut farmers who say they lost more than two dozen acres of land along the Feather River when that Oroville Dam spillway failed back in February 2017, causing massive flooding and destructive erosion in the area below. The claim was filed on behalf of Gem Farms and Chandon Ranch, which operate a total of 2,000 acres of walnuts on both sides of the Feather River in Butte County. The landowners say they lost about 27 acres of land, and the $15 million claim includes production losses as well as cleanup costs. 
Other farmers also say their property was damaged by fluctuations in water releases from the dam. The Yolo Land Trust, a nonprofit that controls thousands of acres along the Sacramento River, says it lost nearly 15,000 walnut trees because of the abrupt and erratic releases of high volumes of water from Oroville. It said the lost trees were worth around $19 million. It's seeking triple damages under state law for a total claim of over $57 million. Submitting a claim is a necessary first step in filing a lawsuit against the state, although there's no need for litigation if the State Department of General Services simply agrees to pay. And according to the Sacramento Bee, so far the state has not paid on a single claim. The claimant said they expected those rejections and they're prepared to take their cases to court, which should be filed sometime this month. That independent forensic team that wrote the report about the Oroville emergency says dam safety must become a higher priority at the Department of Water Resources. And last Wednesday, the Department of Water Resources made some changes. They announced a new director has been appointed and its executive team restructured to further bolster dam and flood safety, emphasize climate resilience, and incorporate lessons learned from the recent impacts of extreme weather on the state's water system. Carlin Namath is now the new director of the Department of Water Resources. She is the fourth director of DWR in less than a year. Namath had been deputy secretary and senior advisor for water policy at the California Natural Resources Agency since 2014. The person she's replacing, Grant Davis, is returning to the Sonoma County Water Agency to serve as general manager. Grant Davis had only been on the job since last summer. And the Sacramento Bee reports that there may have been personality conflicts between Grant Davis and some personnel at DWR that hastened his departure. One of the people interviewed by the Bee said Davis sometimes was too aggressive about suggesting changes at DWR that he got ahead of the curve. President Donald Trump concluded the 99th American Farm Bureau Federation annual convention Tuesday, praising farmers and ranchers as the future of the nation. The men and women in this room come from different backgrounds and from all across our land, but each of you carries the same title that's been proudly borne by patriots and pioneers, inventors and entrepreneurs, the title of, very proudly, American Farmer. He championed policy successes for agriculture, including tax reform, a reduction of federal regulations, and the rollback of the Waters of the U.S. rule. Trump also signed two executive orders on stage in Nashville related to expanding rural broadband access. Streamlining and expediting requests to locate broadband facilities in rural America. Supporting broadband tower facilities in rural America and federal properties managed by the Department of the Interior. Those towers are going to go up, and you are going to have great, great broadband. President Trump pledged his support to farmers and ranchers during his address. Thank you very much, Tennessee, and thank you for the honor of speaking here this afternoon. I'm thrilled to stand with you today, and I will be standing with you for many years to come. Together, we truly are making America great again. Michael Clements, Nashville. It wasn't a total love fest between the president and the audience at the American Farm Bureau Federation last week. His speech was going along smoothly until he brought up a subject that's near and dear to a lot of farmers who are searching for farm labor. We are going to end chain migration. We are going to end the lottery system. And we are going to build the wall. 
Yes, that was a smattering of boos that you heard in that audience. Farmers in California and elsewhere around the country need an improved system to allow people to enter the United States legally to work on farms and ranches. Many farm bureaus across the country are working for that goal. The California Farm Bureau, for one, along with other organizations, are continuing to work with Congress to create a secure, flexible, market-based agricultural immigration program. And the Los Angeles Times reports there aren't enough farm workers. For generations, rural Mexico has been the primary source of hired farm labor here in the United States. According to a federal survey, 9 out of 10 ag workers in places like California are foreign-born, and more than half are in the United States illegally. Farm labor from Mexico has been on the decline, though, and under the Trump administration, many in the ag industry worry that the deportations and the fear of them could further cut the supply of workers. But try as they have to entice workers with better salaries and benefits, companies have found attracting enough U.S.-born workers to make up for the shortage from south of the border an impossible task. Coming up in two weeks, the latest round of North American Free Trade Agreement renegotiations. This round to be held in Montreal, Canada. And Agriculture Secretary Sonny Perdue Monday stated his continued belief of a favorable outcome. I have great faith in President Trump's skills as a negotiator, and I'm quite confident that he will strike the best deal possible for the United States and that we will have a fair NAFTA agreement that works well for our economy, including the agricultural sector. The secretary speaking at the American Farm Bureau Federation Convention in Nashville explained that continued resolve by U.S. negotiators. We, the United States, have put a number of proposals on the table to modernize NAFTA and critically for agriculture to address key sectors left out of that original agreement, specifically dairy and poultry tariffs in Canada. While emphasizing the importance of ag trade, particularly with our nation's NAFTA partners. Canada and Mexico continue to be major markets for United States exports. Bob Rodbane reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Here's this week's California crop report. Fields that were planted earlier in the season had signs of good growth, but most fields were irrigated due to the lack of rain up until recently to maintain growth. Winter forage crops such as wheat, barley, and other cereal grains, as well as forage mixes, continue to be planted and seed shipments are being received. Irrigation is still necessary to maintain growth of those plantings that have germinated. Alfalfa went dormant and fields are treated with herbicides or being grazed on by sheep. The pruning of dormant stone fruit trees started to reach completion. Persimmons continue to be harvested. Some older, poorly producing orchards and vineyards were removed and prepped for replanting. Wine grapes were pruned and tied along with having herbicides applied. Some growers prepared to have winter dormant sprays. The navel orange harvest continues. Pomelos were harvested. Olive growers continue to prune their groves. And the strawberry fields continue to thrive. The winter shake for almonds is finished. Pruning continues in nut orchards. Pistachios, almonds, walnuts, and pecans continue to be packed and shipped primarily to foreign markets. Some older orchards were pushed out, and the ground is being prepped for planting of new varieties. Winter vegetables are being harvested. Some fields are being prepared and planted with additional winter vegetable crops. Lettuce continues to grow. Garlic and onion planting is ongoing. The harvest for winter greens such as cabbage, chard, collard greens, kale, parsley, and daikon radishes is ongoing. Head and leaf lettuce has been planted for the spring 2018 crop. Broccoli, celery, and spinach continue to grow nicely. Asparagus fields were shredded in preparation for spring growth. Lettuce and arugula seed were exported to foreign marketplaces. 
Tomato beds are being prepared. The carrot planting is ongoing, while the fall carrots have not been harvested yet. In San Joaquin County, sheep continue to graze on idle cropland, stubble fields, and dormant alfalfa fields. Supplemental feeding of livestock continues as grassland and rangeland still lacked enough moisture for good growth. In Fresno County, the lack of rainfall has left rangeland forage conditions poor. Supplemental feeding is ongoing. Bare root roses are being received and processed for reshipment out of state, mostly to Texas. Bare root berries are being received at wholesale nurseries. Nursery shipments have slowed due to the winter weather and the time of the year. Beehives were reported overwintering around Fresno County, and they're being given supplemental feedings. Most feedlots are reported to be at full capacity. Take the KSTE Farm Hour with you wherever you go. It's available at KSTE.com or the iHeartRadio app in streaming mode, or you can download it from your favorite third-party podcast aggregator, such as iTunes. Well, here's your weekly weed report. The California Department of Food and Agriculture's Cal Cannabis Cultivation Licensing Division, along with the Bureau of Cannabis Control and the California Department of Public Health, are offering 14 workshops this month and in February on California's Cannabis Track and Trace System. The system will be used statewide to record the inventory and movement of cannabis as well as cannabis products throughout the commercial cannabis supply chain from cultivation to sale. The workshops will provide a general overview of how the track and trace system will work and how it will be used by all state cannabis licensees. That includes those with licenses for cannabis cultivation, manufacturing, retail, distribution, testing labs, and micro-businesses. Workshops will be scheduled throughout the state. More information available at calcannabis.cdfa.ca.gov. Oh, but hold on a moment. Attorney General Jeff Sessions is rescinding an Obama-era federal policy that provides legal shelter for marijuana sales in states that have allowed recreational pot, placing thousands of marijuana businesses here in California, as well as other states operating legally under state law, at risk of federal raids and seizures. The L.A. Times reports that the Justice Department move has plunged California's fledgling recreation pot market into further uncertainty and was met with a bipartisan backlash from lawmakers in states where marijuana is now sold legally to any adult who wants to buy it. Here we go. Ah, yes, you saw the ball drop uh, the other night, so 2017 is over. Goodbye. What will farmers remember about last year in general? I think 2017 will most likely be remembered as another year in this downturn of commodity prices. For many farmers, it was another year of belt tightening. For consumers, though, it was a year when their grocery bills stayed about the same, maybe even dropped a little bit. But what about this new 2018 year? We'll get some early forecasts about this uh, year coming up on Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford. For the people who grow and raise our food, the agricultural sector, 2017 was yet another year in which farmers had a pretty high production of crops and livestock, but they got pretty low prices for those products, putting more of them in more debt and some of them in financial trouble. But what about this new, fresh 2018 year? Another year of the same. Uh-oh. A somewhat somber note there from the Agriculture Department's chief economist, Rob Johansson. Here are his preliminary projections for average 2018 crop prices and such, and we give these 
these to you just to give you an idea of what a farmer is likely to be paid for, say, a bushel of a crop. And it is not a lot of money. Corn coming in at $3.20 a bushel, that's down a little bit from the 2016-2017 crop year price. Down 16 cents for soybeans. Soybeans have been remaining relatively strong uh, in demand from China, but we do see prices coming down to about $9.30 a bushel. A loss again of 16 cents from this past season. Some better news, sort of, for wheat growers this past season. They received an average price that was less than it cost to produce the wheat. They got an average of only three eighty-nine a bushel, but... We expect that to rebound up to about $4.60 a bushel, but still that's relatively low compared to cost of production. In 2017, the bright note in the farm commodity price picture was livestock and dairy prices. They were mostly higher than in 2016. Livestock returns were up 7.6%. But what's the outlook now for 2018? By and large, we do expect to see prices come down, but just by a little bit. Mainly because of production increases, about 5% each for pork and beef, a little less than 2% for milk. Now, the Agriculture Department has not made a forecast yet for the 2018 farm income for the entire U.S. farm sector, but there are some hints. Uh, We heard Johansson say, of course, commodity prices would be flat or falling this year, but farmers derive their incomes from more than just sales of products. Uh, Some farmers get income from direct government safety net program payments. In 2017, those payments were down nearly 14 percent from 2016. Uh, Johansson says for 2018, we would expect government payments by and large to be smaller than they were in 2017. Now, farmers got a little bit of a break in 2015 and 16 when the costs of producing their products actually went down, but farm production costs started up in 2017. So these factors may hint at lower incomes for farmers in 2018. Johansson says over this past year, more farmers have had to borrow more money just to keep operating. Some are having trouble making payments on those loans. And meanwhile... Producers have been using any kind of capital reserves that they had built up during the 2012-2013 record price years. Cash reserves have fallen by more than 70% over that time period. So as we go into 2018, Johansson says a little less than 20% of farm operations are considered highly or very highly leveraged. That puts them in a precarious position, especially if they should suffer some sort of weather-related cut in their production. But there's still lots of uncertainty about what's going to happen with farmers' income in 2018. So now let's go from the farm to the grocery store. Now, of course, how much farmers produce and the price they get for those products does affect what we food shoppers pay for food, at least to some extent. Now, in 2016, average grocery store food prices went down from the year before, the first yearly decline since 1967. Now, the 2017 figures not complete yet, but prices are expected to either be the same as 2016 or down a little bit. But for 2018, we're expecting to pay one to two percent more for our groceries. Agriculture Department food price analyst Anne Marie Coons. This, even though, as we said, the farm prices for most meat animals and most crops expected to be lower this year. So we asked Amory why the grocery price forecast of a 1% to 2% hike. We've seen energy and gas and oil prices expecting to increase in 2018, as well as increases in labor costs and other retail overhead costs, which put upward pressure on prices. Ah, but remember one thing. Last year at this time, the forecast for 2017 was for a 1% to 2% food price hike. So you know how that turned out. So remember, all of these projections, very early, very preliminary, and as we have found out many times, things can change in a hurry for Agriculture USA. I'm Gary Crawford reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington.
Farmers and ranchers are welcoming the tax reform package signed by President Donald Trump late last year. At the American Farm Bureau Federation's 99th Annual Convention, AFBF tax specialist Pat Wolf says the bill means lower taxes for most farmers and ranchers. Tax rates are going down, so that's good for big, small, all kind of farmers. The estate tax exemption is up. There are very few farmers who will have to worry about estate taxes going down the road. And there's lots of good things in here for farm management. Increased expensing, cash accounting, the deduction for interest. The tax changes are in effect now, so farmers and ranchers should take a second look at some aspects of their business planning. It won't impact the tax returns that are being filled out right now but it will be in full force for 2018. That means some planning is needed and farmers and ranchers should be talking with their accountants to figure out the best way to make the new provisions work for them. She says farmers are excited to see the full impact of the bill. Farmers and ranchers are eager to learn all the details of the new tax bill. Unfortunately, it's going to take a little while for the IRS to write the rules, but we know the top line items and we can use those to project savings on farms and ranches. Tests on produce collected by the California Department of Pesticide Regulation indicate that the vast majority of fruits and vegetables available for sale in California meet the stringent pesticide safety standards that have been adopted. During its 2016 survey, DPR found 96% of tested California-grown produce had little or no pesticide residues. The report is based on year-round collection of 3,500 samples of produce from 27 different countries, including those labeled as organic. California-grown produce accounted for 24% of the samples tested. DPR scientists and staff sampled produce from various grocery stores, farmers markets, food distribution centers, as well as other outlets throughout California. The produce is tested for nearly 400 types of pesticides using state-of-the-art equipment operated by the California Department of Food and Agriculture. Some of the highlights of that report, 39% of all produce sampled had no detectable residues at all, 57% had residues detected but within the legal level, and only 4% of the samples had pesticide residues in excess of the established tolerance or had illegal traces of pesticides that are not approved for that commodity. Any conversation with organic farmers eventually turns to one subject, weeds. A lot of weed seed predation happens. So we keep the weeds high. Having a bunch of weeds. There's more plants, whether they're weeds or not. A single weed can produce more than 10 million seeds. So if they're not dealt with in time, they can present farmers with challenges for years to come. But instead of using chemical herbicides, Organic farmers can work with the USDA's Natural Resources Conservation Service to implement a variety of innovative practices that suppress weeds while continuing to build soil health. Cover crops are an effective tool for suppressing weeds, and they can work in three ways. When alive, they effectively outcompete weeds for water, nutrients, and sunlight. As green mulch, they physically prevent the germination of weed seed by preventing access to light and warmer temperatures. Farmers can also use a variety of plastic or paper mulches. These are installed at the beginning of the growing season and come in colors that can directly impact the development of individual crops. Finally, 
when certain legume, cereal, or brassica cover crops decompose. They produce natural herbicides that can suppress weed seed while sequestering carbon. Using the area between rows to grow additional crops, like growing flowers between rows of berries, is also an effective means to suppress weeds. On open fields, organic farmers can use minimum tillage practices and a variety of tools for mechanical weeding. Farmers even use devices like flamers. These eradicate weeds before they have time to mature and go to seed. And advances in organic no-till with tools like the roller crimper help organic producers reduce soil disturbances in annual crop rotations. Another valuable tool is a nutrient management plan to help farmers with right source, rate, time, and applications to give crops a growth advantage over weeds. The targeted livestock grazing of cattle, sheep, and goats also offer additional tools for suppressing weed growth. And when all else fails, farmers can and do use the oldest form of weed control. They weed by hand. To learn more about how NRCS can help organic farmers suppress weeds using cover crops, mulch, nutrient management, no-till farming, and biological weed control, contact your local NRCS office where they can help you help your land organically. For more information, visit the website nrcs.usda.gov organic. And if you're doing intercropping, don't forget the insectary plants. These are plants that attract beneficial insects like ladybugs that biologically control pests. Also, companion planting to draw pests away from crops. Installing nesting sites such as bat and owl boxes can help manage pests. Cover crops naturally break the cycle of soil-borne diseases as well as some soil-dwelling insects while increasing the soil's organic matter. A new app based on USDA's Complete Guide to Home Canning aims to provide reliable information for a new generation of home food preservationists. The Pacific Northwest is an area where there are a lot of really independent, self-sufficient people, and we also produce a tremendous amount of food. We have a lot of seasonal fresh produce, fish, and meat. Jean Brandt with Oregon State University Extension Service came up with the idea for the app. We're really intent on helping the community members stay safe and have easy, affordable access to current food preservation information. She says one important reason to preserve food correctly is because of the ever-present danger of food poisoning. The Centers for Disease Control do track the outbreaks and the cases of Clostridium botulinum that are food-based. The app is free and available through the App Store or on Oregon State University's online Extension Service Publications Catalog. This is Stephanie Ho for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Well, there should be plenty of California strawberries for shoppers this year if weather and growing conditions cooperate. The California Strawberry Commission says farmers may produce another record crop just as they have done the last two years. This is in spite of fewer acres being planted. Farmers say higher yielding strawberry varieties have allowed them to produce more fruit on less land. 
Many of us with a mind's eye view of crop farming may not only see plants and combines, but perhaps irrigation systems as well. That is, unless you are from a semi-arid to arid region of the country where dryland farming is practiced. And yes, we do produce wheat with six inches of annual precipitation. That's the driest wheat production region in the world. Bill Schillinger is referring to an area of south-central Washington state that produces winter wheat every other year. He knows something about dryland farming as a researcher at Washington State University's Dryland Research Station. The Inland Pacific Northwest, along with the Great Plains and Southwest, are the most noted dryland farming regions in the U.S. And Schillinger says within his region's dryland zone, there are three notable precipitation bands, an example of how yearly rainfall accumulations and soil moisture within a dryland farming area play a role in the amount and variety of crops grown annually. The 18 to 26 zone, that's annual cropping. Winter wheat is king in that zone, but they also grow spring wheat, spring barley, spring dry pea, spring lentil. Now, success for a dry land farmer involves some unique practices. Yes, soil and water conservation are involved through techniques such as minimal tillage and wider-than-normal spacing to create a larger water bank per plant. These practices can also help with the common threat of wind erosion in dry land areas. Wind erosion is our biggest concern, and we're making headway there. Residue management, less tillage, going to the no-till. Schillinger adds that disease and pest pressures are different than in irrigated crop farming. For instance, the diseases vary with precipitation zone. They tend to be more prevalent with higher precipitation. At least you get more diseases, a different range of diseases. And trends are similar when it comes to dry land crop pest and weed threats. Pests are not our biggest concern. We have some aphid problems now and then, but farmers are putting out a lot more money for weed control than they are for bugs. We've got some weed pressures. Those are grass weed pressures from downy brome. Some of those pressures can be managed through practices such as including a non-cereal crop within a crop rotation. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. The millennial generation will likely be an important driver in the economy for years to come, according to the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which reports on the generation's food buying habits in a new study. It says millennials, those are ones born between 1981 and 1996, are demanding healthier, fresher food than earlier generations. They want to spend less on food intended to be eaten at home and spend more on prepared food. The nation's land-grant university system plays a vital role in protecting American agriculture from global threats of all kinds, from invasive disease and pest to bioterrorism. That role is nothing new, according to Kansas State University President Richard Myers. Protecting U.S. agriculture is a mission of America's land-grant universities, among others, a mission that began in 1862 when President Lincoln signed the Morrill Act. Myers was among those recently offering lawmakers examples of land-grant's continued commitment to ag biodefense. Michigan State University plant pathologist Ray Hammerschmidt presented one such example. The MSU lab is one of the land-grant laboratories that collectively form the National Plant Diagnostic Network. This network is involved in rapidly detecting and diagnosing plant pathogens and pests. We also involve in reporting this information to the appropriate entities, whether it's back to the grower or to regulatory agencies so we can have mitigation. With the network supported by USDA's National Institute of Food and Agriculture. I'm Rod Bain reporting for the U.S. Department of Agriculture in Washington, D.C. Congratulations to the Cal Poly schools. They won the past president's trophy at the latest Rose Parade in Pasadena. The float was designed, constructed, and decorated by students from Cal Poly San Luis Obispo, as well as Cal Poly Pomona. 
It included nearly 97% of cut flowers and greens from California. The float was adorned with over 40,000 stems of California-grown blooms. That included 10,000 roses, 10,000 Gerbera daisies, and 1,000 irises. The bulk of the float was festooned with mums, 12,000 chrysanthemums, 7,500 yellow button mums, 3,000 green button mums, 1,000 orange cushion mums, and 500 purple cushion mums. The flowers and foliage were donated by California flower farmers. The white and lavender status used on the floats was grown by the students at San Luis Obispo campus. Almond growers are looking a little nervously at their groves right now. Well, there's no pink bud yet, or full bloom for that matter, but it's coming, and it's coming soon. So what about controlling some of the diseases that are going to be popping up? Well, pink bud and full bloom stage is the time to start controlling those diseases. We're talking with Rob Kiss. He's with Bear Crop Science. He's a customer business advisor. And Rob, what are some of the diseases that hit Central Valley almonds? Well, you can start with brown rot. That's the first thing that affects them. And then you can go to jacket rot, provided that we have uh, plenty of moisture and the temperatures are correct, anthracnose, shot hole, and later in the season, scab and rust. And then even later than that, in various parts of the state, mostly the north and the south, alternaria leaf spot. Some of the diseases where a spray program needs to get employed at pink bud or full bloom stage would include uh, anthracnose, bacterial spot, brown rot, blossom blight, uh, green fruit rot, perhaps even shot hole. And Rob, I guess there's even some powdery mildew-like diseases that are popping up in almond orchards these days. When, when is the time to uh, start applying sprays for those? So as soon as there's any floral tissue available, they can be susceptible to any of these diseases, particularly brown rot. So we need to put something on it to protect against that. What does Bear Crop Science have in its arsenal to help almond growers out at this time of the year? Generally, you like to start with scala, which is a uh, frac 9 material. And all our materials are designed so that we can mix, the, mix and match a little bit so we don't fall into the position where we're going to have some resistance develop. Consequently, we start with scala at the brown rot and jacket rot protection scale. After that point, when we get to full bloom, we like to recommend Luna Sensation, which has a strong efficacy profile rating by the UCIPM scale and is highly effective of the diseases that we find that come through full bloom. If we continue to have inclement weather, we still need to protect it a few weeks after that against anthracnose, shot hole, scab, rust, and alternaria. We like to recommend Luna Experience at that time, which is FRAC Group 7-3. Yeah, let's talk a little bit about, uh, for those who don't know, what a FRAC number refers to. A FRAC refers to Fungicide-Resistant Action Committee, and it's all about not overdosing a, a, a fungicide because it, the, the pest could develop a resistance to it. So the idea is to uh, mix it up with other exactly. active ingredients. Exactly. You don't want to to amplify the potential for resistance. Consequently, you need to mix up your chemistries. And hence, the Luna and the Scala products, which have different frac numbers, would be a good combination for almond growers. Absolutely. That fits the bill real well. What is the difference between Luna Sensation and Luna Experience? They are two different frac groups. Luna Sensation is a S-D-H-I-Q-O-L, frac group 711, and Luna Experience is in FRAC Group 7 and 3, which is SDHI and uh, a DMI. So they fall into two different FRAC groups. 
What are the general application methods for both Luna and Scala? How can they be applied? We would like to see them put on with an air blast sprayer to get good coverage. That's critical. You can also put them on by air, but uh, the coverage is critical like every other application. So making sure you got the right material at the right time against your right pest is, the, is important. Read and follow all label directions. Now, what's great about both Luna and Scala is they have early bud penetration, correct? Exactly. They can penetrate into that tissue and go through that so that it, it will be effective through the green tissue and through the buds and all the way through the uh, blossom, through bloom. What about some of the uh, other diseases that affect uh, almonds here in California, like anthracnose or green fruit rot and leaf blight? Do uh, growers here need to be concerned about those? You know, uh, there can be affected areas by that, but uh, what we're seeing more of and recently is uh, scab and rust, and that's becoming a, a bigger a bigger pro- problem throughout the state. Uh, one good thing about the the Luna products is that they're they're highly rated against scab and rust later in the season. Anthracnose, is, on the other hand, it depends on how much rain you get. If you have varieties that are sen- sensitive to it and we get uh, an extreme amount of rain later in the season, it can be a problem. And, of course, the sensation and experience work very, very well and are highly rated against that. At what stage in development of the tree should uh, sprays for scab start to be applied? You know, that's, that's kind of a post, post-petal fall timing uh, later on in the spring. Uh, after bloom is when that normally becomes a problem. If you have one varieties and in areas that get enough rain during that period of time that are sensitive to it, that's when you start looking for that. Now, you mentioned rainfall. Let's talk about some of the uh, weather considerations that growers should uh, take under consideration as far as application of these products. How far out uh, should rain be in the forecast when you apply these? That's a great question. The answer to that is, can you get over your orchard? quick enough to get this on before the rain. When considering applications, you have to think about whether or not I can get over it, whether I have varieties that are sensitive to it, but I've got to get my material on beforehand. I mean, it's kind of like kind of like putting on a raincoat. You got to put it on before the rain. So you got to have enough time to make sure you get it on. I think that's the most important thing you have to consider. And what role does fog play in any consideration of application of these products? There are some varieties that are extremely sensitive to brown rot, and I have seen in various times when we didn't get any rain, and yet we saw brown rot. So if it's foggy and continues to stay, you have stay wet, and the uh, buds have freestanding moisture created by fog, you need to think about protecting them, particularly if you have varieties that are sensitive to them, to uh, brown rot, such as buttes. Even though brown rot blossom blight is a concern this time of year for almond growers, probably the biggest pest almond growers in California now face is navel orange worm. And Rob, what can almond growers do to maybe suppress those populations? Field sanitation, field sanitation, field sanitation. Get those mummies off. Mummies are where they live. When you eliminate their homes, you eliminate the populations, or at least you knock them down. That's the best, most efficacious thing you can do to help control navel orange worm. Get the mummies out of the trees. The problem is if it's too dry, it's difficult to shake them off. Fortunately, we've gotten a little rain recently, and I see shakers running all over the place up and down the state, knocking off those mummies. Then once we get them down, 
We've got to get them destroyed, mashed up, and eliminated from the field. Naval orange worm is a pest that you can you can kill, and it the populations change from year to year and they vary. Diseases are ubiquitous. They're in the orchard, they don't go away. If we have a dry bloom season and we don't see many diseases, it doesn't mean they went away. The fungus population is still there. Consequently, if we have threats of rain, we need to protect against it because this poor almond is not indigenous to California and they're not protected naturally by anything against diseases. That's why we need to protect them with a strong fungicide program. For almond growers, from bloom to harvest, Luna's two fungicides, sensation and experience, protect almonds throughout the growing season, improving plant health for beautiful crops and abundant almond yields season after season. And as a breakthrough systemic fungicide, Luna controls brown rot, blossom blight, alternaria, and other problematic diseases. And that third weapon from Bear Crop Science in helping almond growers is Scala, a foliar fungicide that provides high-level preventative control against multiple damaging diseases in tree nuts. We've been talking with Rob Kiss. He's with Bear Crop Science. He is their customer business advisor. And Rob, thanks for a few minutes of your time telling us about Luna Experience, Luna Sensation, and Scala. Well, here's hoping to a great bloom season and a profitable year coming. Looks like the bud set's pretty strong this year, and we have high hopes for being profitable this year. Thanks for listening to the KSTE Farm Hour. Heard every Sunday from noon until 1 p.m. Pacific Time and available anytime as a podcast. Download it at KSTE.com.